Well, during the season of Lent, uh, we are reading a number of psalms. Uh, a number of the psalms are, are quite excellent at helping us think about repentance, learn how to do it well. We learn about kind of heart posture, how we should feel, how should we think when it comes to repentance. And Psalm 51, the psalm that David wrote um, after, the, uh, after Bathsheba and Uriah and all that, uh, is one of the best, one of the most helpful. And so we're going to read it this morning and then use it as a way to enter into a time of confession. Evelyn is going to come and read it for us. Evelyn, if you would. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We are in a series in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, even though it's our anniversary, we're not departing from it, we're going to continue moving forward. And the theme of 1 Samuel is God is King. God is King, so even as these under rulers come up and do various things, uh, we really see God working in, in today's passage, you'll see even though King Saul is kind of leading the charge on this, this fight against the Ammonites, we really see God at work, God using him um, and, and stuff like that. So uh, Randy is going to come and read that for us on the back middle panel of your bulletin or just you know scroll down a little bit if you're using the digital one. Randy. First Samuel chapter 11. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you 
that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, give us seven days respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen and Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh and the spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have deliverance. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning, watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, who is it that said, shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, come let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. This is the infallible word of the Lord. All right, we're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on this text together. From what or from whom do you feel like you need to be saved? If I were to sit on your couch this afternoon and ask you that question, what comes to mind? Is it uh, some large uncontrollable threat, climate change, nuclear war, sudden catastrophe? Or is it a person that comes to mind, a person you feel like you need to be rescued from, a a bullying boss or a family member who's very difficult? Or perhaps it's a situation that comes to mind, maybe it's a dead-end job, debts that are out of control, doors of opportunity that have been slammed in your face. 
There's an important word that occurs three times in today's passage. It's the word save or salvation. In Hebrew, they come from the same root. It's there in verse 3, when the people of Jabesh are looking for salvation. It's there in verse 9, when Saul, empowered by the Spirit of God, promises salvation. And it's there in verse 13, when the people of God rejoice in God, working out his salvation. In each phase of this passage, salvation is at the center. And thus, the big theme that we're working with today is this one, God saves. Now, that sounds like a tired Christian cliche. (laughs) Well, Jesus saves. Okay, well, what does that mean? It's going to be important for us, because those words are so familiar to many of us, it's going to be important to kind of pick up this phrase and like a rare jewel, you know, shine some light on it, examine it from a couple different angles to figure out what it means. It's not just a billboard phrase. What does it mean that God saves? From whom or from what does he save? By what means does he save? How should we respond to his saving work? And et cetera, and et cetera. I think this lens of Saul and the Israelites fighting with Nahash and the Ammonites, it's just an excellent lens through which to view the salvation of God. Because here's the thing about these Old Testament stories. Maybe you're wondering, why are we reading these anyways? They show in miniature what is often universally true. There are little lessons, little principles found all throughout these stories that tell us, that show us how God works in the world at large. But there are kind of three stages to the story. Stage number one, the people are looking for salvation. We'll do that first. Stage number two, salvation is provided. And stage three, response to salvation. Now, the story opens with a whole bunch of names and a whole bunch of places that for most of us don't mean anything at all. You're like, what is, what is a Jabesh? What is a Gibeah? Why, who is this Nahash person? I want to do just a little bit of storytelling, a little bit of history, because I think it'll set the, the stage, the table for what's going on. If you go all the way back to the Exodus, when Israel's on their way to the promised land to Canaan, they go, they go near the land of Ammon. And, and, and the book of Deuteronomy records this event where Israel sends out messengers to the Ammonites, and they were saying, we want to buy some food, we want to buy some water, we kind of want safe passage through your land. And the Ammonites are like, no, no, you can't come through our land, you can't, you, you can't do anything, and we're not going to sell you anything. The relationship between the two peoples, it didn't start well. Now, if you picture Israel as like a rough rectangle, the land of Ammon is to the east and, to the, and a little bit north of Israel. So the upper right, if you're like, I don't know what an east is. It's the upper right of Israel, if you can picture it on a map in your mind. And importantly, when Israel invades the land, three tribes get a share of land east of the Jordan. So they're just south of Ammonite, just below Ammonite territory. The rest of the tribes are over here between the Jordan and the Mediterranean, the very typical land of Israel that you think of. The tribes that live east of the Jordan have regular skirmishes with the other tribes that live around this area, including the Ammonites. When Israel has no king, for many years when they had no king, there wasn't like a professional army that marched around fighting battles whenever there was someone to fight. Each tribe basically fought its own enemies. Oh, you're next to these guys? Okay, you fight those guys. And according to some Jewish historical sources, not not in the Bible, but sort of extra biblical, this guy Nahash, he's been causing a lot of trouble for quite a bit of time before this incident with Jabesh Gilead comes up. Nahash has been raiding Israelite towns and villages, outlying areas, plundering, killing, being a bad dude all around. And his signature move, threatened in this story, is to gouge out the right eyes of the men. Now, why would he do that? 
Well, uh, a couple a couple reasons. Uh, the shields of this time, this is a little fun military fact, shields of this time were kind of interlocking, and when soldiers would go and fight, they'd kind of stand in these, these rows, and shoulder to shoulder, and their left eye was usually behind the shield, and their right eye sort of, you know, peeked out and could kind of see, you know, how the enemy was advancing. Um, and so if you gouge out the right eye, it makes them, makes fighting in these shield walls uh, kind of, kind of tricky. In addition, some other scholars think, well, if you're an archer, you need two eyes for depth perception. And so to be a good archer, you only having one eye, you know, is a, a severe disadvantage uh, on kind of all these different fronts. So basically, Nahash is an evil villain, because by gouging out their right eye, he renders them useless as soldiers, but still useful as slaves and as laborers. And so that's what he's doing. He's going around creating this whole class of slaves and laborers. It gives you a sense why the men of Jabesh are afraid of him. A couple more things. Nahash, ravaging villages. He eventually picks a fight with this place called Jabesh Gilead. This is not a little village. This is a larger fortified town, probably a few thousand people. Archaeology says they probably had a wall of some kind. And so he's besieging. That's like a word for like, you know, surrounding, cutting off the supplies from this town. But they quickly cave in. And then they ask for a week to see if they can find some help. Now Jabesh Gilead, the besieged town, has a unique relationship with Gibeah, with Benjamin, where Saul lived, where he was from. During the last story in the book of Judges, everyone in Israel, 11 tribes, go to fight with Benjamin for reasons that are too long to explain here, but against Gibeah, one of the chief cities of Benjamin, and everyone goes to fight Benjamin except the men of Jabesh Gilead. Now Benjamin's almost completely wiped out in this battle, but there are some Benjamites left, but there's almost no Benjamite women left. And so right at the end of Judges, there's this interesting story where they go to Jabesh Gilead because they hadn't fought against the Benjamites, and they get all, a bunch of women, 400 women from Jabesh Gilead, and, and they become wives to the Benjamite. They, they basically rebuild and repopulate the tribe of Benjamin from Jabesh Gilead. And now this is the town that's under attack. So you can kind of imagine, when these women here, our former city, our former area is being threatened, they are extremely motivated to get their husbands and their sons or, 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 their, or their fathers or whatever to go and fight. Now I know that's a lot of historical stuff, but I think that helps you understand, this is what's going on in Israel. There's all these relationships and, and, and history. Now I want to zero in on a couple of details. So he threatens the town, he tells them he's going to gouge out their right eyes, and if you look at the end of verse 2, he states his motivation. Why is Nahash such an evil villain? He says he wants to bring disgrace on Israel. He's doing it for his own evil enjoyment. He enjoys making people squirm and fear him. He enjoys that they look bad. He enjoys their powerlessness. The point is to make Israel disgraced. And that's why he lets them send out messengers. Maybe you read this story and we're like, why is he letting them ask for help? Kind of seems like a, a foolish idea. He thinks no one's going to come and it's going to add to their humiliation. He's like, I'm going to ransack this town. I'm going to you know, uh, maim all these men and no one can stop me. Nahash thinks there's no hope. He's arrogant and he's an enemy of, of God's people. But so Jabesh Gilead, you know, in maybe some faint hope, they send out their messengers and what do they go around asking for? Verse 3, they are looking for someone to save them. They're looking for someone to save them. Now, if you were here last week, when God called Saul to be king, do you remember the reason that Samuel gave on behalf of God? Samuel tells Saul, this is in chapter 10, verse 1, Saul, you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. 
what the people of Jabesh Gilead, what they want and what Saul was explicitly called to do, they're the same thing. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. The people want salvation. They're faced with these arrogant, gloating, evil enemies' disgraces at hand. Now, perhaps you don't feel like there's an obvious Nahash in your life. There's no one standing over you, threatening you, laughing at your anguish. Perhaps you're wondering, is there any parallel between these ancient Israelites and this brutal time and and us? Well, the story of the scriptures is that there is an enemy power arrayed in the field against, against humanity. See, some of us do have human enemies that are trying to harm us, but we always, and all of us, have a spiritual enemy opposing us. See, in the world, it's not just a struggle to to do right and to be right as humans, but that Satan and the evil forces of darkness are also arrayed against, at 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 war with humanity, and they're intent, just like this guy Nahash, on ruin and disgrace. Another way to think about it is that sin is a verb. That's often how we talk about it. Uh, sin is something we do. Sin is something that's done to us. It's, it's, it's verb. But you can also think, the, the scriptures also describe sin and Satan as a dominion or as a power that must be defeated. So I would just remind you this morning, there is evil in the world. There, are, there, there is something outside of just the, the evil that exists within humanity. There are enemies within the world that do not yield to education or to reasons or to good intentions. This evil has like a life of its own. And though evil and sin, though Satan may not feel like a threat, just like a marauding warlord, you know, it's actually far more serious. It's far more serious than Nahash. And here's how we know. There's an interesting parallel. In this story, Nahash threatens them with what? The loss of an eye and slavery. And the people are like, oh man, they're in despair. They don't know what to do. When Jesus comes along thousands of years later and teaches about sin, do you remember what he says? He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, you should gouge it out. Jesus says it's better to enter life with only one eye than to have two eyes and be full of sin. In other words, sin is more threatening, more dangerous, more harmful than the loss of an eye. It's better to give up an eye than to give in to sin. That's what Jesus says. You should be glad to give it up in some ways to help you defeat sin. See, Nahash, just a man. A terrifying, an evil man, but just a man. And yet he symbolizes this threat of sin and evil in the life of humanity. I guess the, 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 the biblical picture I'm trying to get you to see here is that all of humanity has to see itself in some ways as being in Jabesh Gilead. That's where you have to start. That's where we begin. You're under threat. You don't have any hope. You are being ridiculed. You face the certainty of destruction unless someone, somewhere, can come and save us. This is the default location of the human race in need of salvation. So that's them looking for salvation. Part two, stage two. Salvation provided. So Jabesh Gilead, they send their messengers in every direction. They don't seem to be looking for the king. Do you notice that? They're just like, they're looking for someone. Can anyone come? But they, especially they send them across the Jordan to where all the other tribes live. It's unclear if the men in Jabesh Gilead even know that Saul has been crowned king. Um, but they come to Gibeah, and everyone hears the news, and they weep. Remember, the women of Gibeah, they're probably, uh, they grew up in Jabesh Gilead, or their mothers are from there, or whatever. These are their people. They're extremely upset. Meanwhile, Saul is not doing kingly things. He's out doing farmer things. He comes in, he comes in with the cows. And it's like, hey, what's going on? Why is everyone so sad? The messengers report the news to him. And then verse 6 is really essential. What happens first? 
If it were me, you'd be like, let's make some plans. We need a strategic response or whatever. Uh, That's not what happens first in this story. The Spirit of God rushes upon him. I think it's, it's hard for us to understand how important this is and how distinct it will be from much of Saul's reign. I mean, imagine you get terrible news like this, and the first response is that the Spirit of God begins to work in your life. It's quite remarkable. And by the way, this is God fulfilling his promise. I read the verse already. But God promised to raise up Saul to defeat the, the, the enemies of the people of God. This is now the Spirit of God is doing this work. But interestingly, what happens when the Spirit of God rushes on Saul? He gets extremely angry. He gets extremely angry. Now let's talk about that for a moment. There's a thread of Christian teaching that says all anger is wrong. And to be fair, in their defense, anger is dangerous, it's volatile, it's hard to control, and it's misused most of the time. Maybe more than any other emotion, it's misused. In general, anger is to be avoided. The scriptures are clear about it. The Proverbs especially warn extensively about anger, how dangerous it is. But fundamentally, anger is a moral emotion. Anger just says, this is wrong. Something is wrong. Now that may be because your toddler has woken you up in the middle of the night. (laughs) This is wrong. You know, it may be because another driver cut you off. They are driving wrongly and they need to be punished or whatever. And it may be because a Middle Eastern warlord is, you know, going to kill a bunch of people. Anger says this is wrong, and it's supplying energy to make things right. And therefore, if we take that as a definition, therefore there are good things to be angry about. Now, we need to probably do a longer thing about anger at some point, but for now, I just want to point out the rushing of the Spirit of God upon Saul is very tightly connected to his anger, suggesting, at least, if not implying, that he has, this is a righteous indignation about what Nahash is doing. He is rightly mad at this evil. It's the appropriate response. His anger is directed to the correct ends. Now, just as a defense for my little anger thesis here, you know that Jesus gets angry sometimes. Now, not often, as far as we have records of, but he gets angry at death when when Lazarus dies. He He gets angry at people who misuse the temple for commerce instead of for prayer. He gets angry at religious authorities who misuse the law. He's just sort of angry at times at the destruction sin causes. And Jesus' anger is directed towards these same things, rectification, towards making wrong things right. Now, ultimately, Jesus doesn't use the sword, but he uses his own death. But Saul does show us this is a righteous king responding to evil. And so Saul sends an old-fashioned summons. He cuts up, I don't know if it's like the oxen he has right there, but he cuts up a pair of oxen and he, he mails pieces of cow through the land with messengers. The messengers are just carrying like a leg of cow or whatever, and everyone they come across, they just say, if you don't come and fight with Saul, then we're going to come and do this to your oxen. It's like, this is king stuff. You're like, when you wanted a king, these are things kings do. It's bold, it's authoritative, and it's kind of threatening. <laughs> like, he's like, something's going to go bad for you if you don't respond to the summons to come and fight. But the text again tips us off that Saul's doing well. The end of verse 7, what happens? The dread of the Lord fell upon the people. Not the dread of Saul, not the dread of Nahash, not the, not the worry that, oh, my oxen are going to get chopped up. It's the fear of the Lord that falls on the people. And all of Israel turns out as one man, just a mass of people and hundreds of thousands. Everyone shows up to fight. 
And Saul sends the messengers back to Jabesh, verse 9. He says, tell them salvation is on the way. Before the sun gets hot, you know, late morning, midday. And the Jabesh Gileadites, of course, are happy. They trick Nahash and they say, oh yes, we're going to surrender tomorrow. Come back or whatever. Presumably to make him happy and relax. Maybe he drinks too much that night, you know, or whatever. But in verse 11, Saul divides his force into three parts. They attack in the middle of the night. Uh, the first watch is between 2 and 6 a.m. So not like the morning, but like middle of the night. And they kill the Ammonites until about noon. It's a long battle. That's multiple hours of fighting. Huge slaughter. Now here's an important question. God is clearly leading and guiding Saul. The Spirit of God rushes upon him. The dread of the Lord falls on the people. Later in verse 13, the success of the attack is directly attributed to God. So the objection goes like this. Why does God tell his people to kill others? Even if they're being threatened, okay? Even if they're being threatened, does this sort of merciless attack, is it at odds with how we normally think about God and Jesus? What about all that turn the other cheek stuff? What about all the thou shalt not murder stuff? Couple, a couple thoughts. First of all, murder is, is, is distinguished from killing while fighting wars in the scripture, mainly because of intent. Murder often, or very normally, has a sinful intent, whereas military fighting, um, the intent is normally protection or self-defense. In addition, in the law of God, capital punishment was prescribed for certain kinds of sins, sins that Nahash and his army were certainly perpetrators of. In short, and we don't have a long time to to do this, but God directs his people to war towards military action as a way of, of judging sin and of demonstrating the justice of God in sort of a brutal and unforgiving world. And also it kind of practically provides Israel a way of continuing to exist. See, we might say, and I'm fine with saying this, peace is the ideal goal of God's people. Yet particularly Israel as a nation state was permitted to fight when they needed to protect themselves. We hardly ever see them waging sort of offensive wars, but we always see them defending themselves. I think there are still good arguments to be made for Christians to be involved with with just battles, just wars. But again, that's a longer point. The larger point here is that God saves That's the pattern we're looking for. God saves his people. God raises up a king who in turn raises up an army and goes and defeats these Ammonites. This is what God does. God raises up saviors, small s, to deal with evil. Like when God sends Moses to deliver the people from Egypt, right? Or uh, when he sends judges, when he sends all kinds of judges, Gideon and Samson, to, to deliver his people. And now God is sending kings to save his people. A pattern is being laid down, friends. Our appetite is being whetted. We're being taught by repetition. This is what God does. So then when we get to the New Testament and we begin to think about the capital E evils of Satan and sin and death, we are trained to expect, if we've read the Old Testament carefully, we are trained to expect that God will provide a sufficient Savior. A Savior will be sent equal to the need of the moment. And in fact, the greatness of the Savior will eclipse the, the size of the threat. So then just think for a moment about how great of a savior Jesus is. He's saved from Satan and sin and all the dark powers, triumphing over them in victory. He paid for the weight of sin, dying for all the wrong we have done. He defeated death itself, buying everlasting life for those who love him. Such a great savior, more than equal to the needs of the moment. But just for for a second here, make it personal. Jesus is enough of a savior for your deepest, darkest sin. Uh, There there is no thought or deed that's too deep or too dark 
that he's not enough of a savior for. And then he's enough of a savior for, for the most debilitating or malicious or malevolent evil spirit that you can imagine. And he's enough of a savior that when death takes you, as it will, when all the doctors and all the, the medicines give up hope, when, when the ravages of life take their toll on you, as it will at some point, he will meet you on the other side. He's enough of a savior for all those things. Whatever you have faced, whatever you will face in this life, if you belong to Jesus, you can take to heart verse 9. You shall have salvation. Not because Saul's here. Saul did well, but not because he's here, but because Jesus is here. Salvation's provided to Jabesh and it offered to all humanity. But let's talk about part three, the response to salvation. So as I said, Saul divides his force. They attack in the middle of the night. I wish they would have told us why three was at the topography of the land. I want some more details. We're not told. But they fight till the next day, middle of the next day. A huge and awful and thorough battle. The Ammonites, the few who remain, aren't even in packs. It's just like one here and one there, totally scattered. And then Israel wonders, what should we do now? The first response is, look at Saul. Isn't he such a great king? Wow, he really did it. He rallied the people. He led a successful attack. The people are thrilled with their new king, Saul. And they're like, wait a second. Wasn't it just like a week, a week or two ago, a short time ago, when people were grumbling about Saul being a king? When, when people didn't bring gifts to Saul, they openly question, is Saul the right guy? And they're like, maybe we should kill these guys. <laughs> That's a, kind of a harsh response. But like, they grumbled, and they were wrong, and now we know, and we're going to kill them. And Saul's like, let's not do that. No one, else, no one else needs to die today. And Samuel, who's apparently hanging around, that we don't, we don't hear from him much in this story, he says, no, no, let's do something different. Let's not kill the malcontents. Let's go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom. Now, does that sound familiar? Does that ring any little bells in the back of your mind? Again, last week, after Saul was anointed in secret by Samuel, Samuel told Saul, go home, do whatever, sort of do whatever you want, but in a short time, meet me in Gilgal to make sacrifices and hear more instruction. And though Samuel is the one who speaks the words here, it's clear, Saul goes along with it, he leads the people to follow it. Samuel, Saul, and all the people, they go to this place, Gilgal. Saul is sort of renounced as king, sacrifices are made, the people have a big party and rejoice. This is, by the way, the high point of Saul's reign. This is like, this is the top. This is, this is the mountaintop. He works with the Spirit of God. He wins a tremendous victory. And now he leads the people deeper into trusting and relying on God. Saul, he's on the right track. So this pattern, there's a need for salvation, there's a provision of salvation, and then there's a renewal of the kingdom. Jabesh Gilead needs saving, God saves him by the hand of Saul. The people renew their commitment to Saul, but more importantly to Yahweh. What should happen in our hearts when God saves us? It should result in a deeper, more serious commitment to Jesus and his kingdom. Every time God comes through, every time he answers prayer, every time he rescues, every time you simply remember everything you've been saved from in your past, the response of the heart is to renew your commitment to the kingdom of God. When God comes through in your life, you don't need to find a place called Gilgal. You just need to reorient your heart toward the kingdom. Sometimes we forget this step. 
Whether it's coming to Jesus for the first time, whether it's been a long time since we first believed, sometimes we forget that joining with Jesus, following Jesus means life in a different kingdom. New habits, new ways of living, new ways of being. Sometimes we're like, we're just happy with salvation and then kind of move on with our day. The, The example of Israel should be instructive on this point. They pause life. They don't just go home. They go down to Gilgal. They make peace sacrifices and they rejoice together. Now today is our eighth birthday as a church. And in the beginning of our church, if, for those of you here, you'll remember this, I've talked about this on occasion. I tended to neglect anniversaries and milestones. It felt weird to me. It felt a little too self-congratulatory. Uh, who cares uh, that a church is turning three? That's not that impressive or whatever. Uh, that's kind of how I felt early on. Now, some older, wiser people set me straight and, you know, told me to stop that, t- told me to knock it off. Because what we celebrate on a church anniversary, it's not me. We're not celebrating that our church was wiser or better or had a cooler logo than anyone else or anything like that. What we celebrate on a church anniversary is the salvation of God. At the same God who delivered his people from Nahash, east of the Jordan in this random town, he's still at work today. He's still saving. He's still gathering his people. He's still leading his people to get together and to make sacrifices to them. And indeed, God loves it when his people get together and rejoice in what he's done. That last verse, the people rejoiced greatly. They went all out. They had food and drink and celebration because God had been so good to them, he'd so clearly rescued them. And that's what we're going to do today after the service. As we eat and as we drink and as we sit together, we publicly are announcing to ourselves mostly that God has done something in Ottawa. He has acted here. It's a tribute to him. And not just here, but indeed this is who God is everywhere. He is a God who brings salvation. He is a God who saves. So to all who can hear, let me invite you again. Let me re-invite you to his kingdom to embrace his salvation. Let's pray together. Good Lord, we thank you. And we are grateful that you are a God who saves. You are a God who saved your people from the Ammonites and from many others, Philistines and many others all the way along, but ultimately you are a God who in Jesus Christ saves us ultimately from sin, Satan, and death. Help us to remember that, help us to rejoice in that, and help us to rejoice today as a church for the, the little saving graces present in all of our lives gathered here today. We are grateful, and we do rejoice. And in Christ's name we pray these things, amen.